Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 56 through 66. You know, we as a church do not hold to what is called a liturgical calendar. We don't really do that. You don't really see us as a church celebrating Advent or Lent or these seasons. You see, you know, mainly in the Roman Catholic Church. And, uh, and even though we do have a Christmas Eve service, technically, just to get into the, the details of the semantics, we use the word service because it's convenient. It's not really a service. It is a time of, of worship. It's a time of instruction. But a service has kind of, carries a connotation that's a little bit different. But having said all that, it is interesting. We were, Jason and I were talking about how the way things are working out in Luke, we're going to be at Christmas pretty much right in the Christmas verses in Luke, and I just need to tell you, I didn't plan that out. It's just the way it is. This morning, we're looking at verses 56 through 66 of Luke chapter 1. Hear now the word of God. Excuse me. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. But they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. So they made signs to his father. What would he have him called? And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, His name is John. So they all marveled. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, praising God. Then fear came on all who dwelt around them, and all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Clearly, Father, John the Baptist is not the central figure of all of Scripture, but according to your wisdom and your will, here he is. Here's a message about his birth, and we do pray that we would walk away and glean from these words that which you would have us understand and know, that we might think your thoughts after you and live in a manner more consistent with who we are, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me do a quick review here of Luke here in chapter 1. Luke, the author, physician, indicates at the very beginning of Luke that he intends, quote, an orderly account of the things fulfilled among them. He's like, I'm going to try to make this as clear as possible. I'm going to make this as orderly as I as I can. You know, sometimes you read the Bible, the story of redemption, and it can appear like a combination of a a hurricane and a tornado and an earthquake and an erupting volcano. You're you're reading it and you're going, where is this all all fit? I remember when I was a kid, when I was 10 years old, we drove across country and we're driving through the heartland, you know, and there's, there's these big fields and they look all crazy and wild, and I remember asking my dad, what are those, what's in those fields? He's like, 
you know, that's wheat. You know, they've planted wheat. And I'm like, wow, it just seems crazy. Until our car got to a certain place where we could see these perfect rows. So from one place, it looked crazy and wild. But from another vantage point, you see the orderliness of it. And let me just suggest to you that if when you read the Bible, it seems crazy and disorderly, that's because your mind and my mind is crazy and disorderly, not because the Bible is crazy and disorderly. Sometimes you'll see like these high-end math equations, you know, like movies about geniuses, and they got the chalkboard out, and they've got all these signs up there and numbers that, are, that don't even look recognizable. It just seems like scribbles, right? Scribbles on a chalkboard. But those who are gifted in mathematics will perceive the orderly beauty. They'll look at it and they'll see something beautiful. This is what Luke is trying to help us do in his gospel, to take that which might seem disorderly and go, look, at. I'm going to make an orderly account that you might understand what has been accomplished among us. And he does that by beginning with the record of a couple that we would maybe not think integral into the Christian faith, Zacharias and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist. Zacharias is a priest, and they're beyond childbearing years when they're visited by the angel Gabriel, and he tells them that they, were, they will supernaturally bring forth a child who will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, obviously, that child is John the Baptist. So in the same way, you might think of um, trumpeters, right? Heralding the coming king. That was the role of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is going, I'm blowing a trumpet because something is about to happen. God is about to keep his promise. God made a promise at the dawn of man that the seed of the woman would overcome the seed of the enemy. And now the promise is going to be kept and John the Baptist is blowing that trumpet. Six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy, Gabriel will now visit the Virgin Mary. She too will have a miraculous birth. And we see these kind of these stories interspersed, right? They're almost parenthetical to each other. But her birth's going to be a little bit different because, because Elizabeth will still have been with her husband, Zacharias, but Mary will conceive by the Holy Spirit. So we got something entirely bigger, something different taking place. Luke will then record how Mary visits her cousin. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. While John is still in his mother's womb. And we read about how John leaps in the womb, even yet unborn, leaps in the womb at the nearness of, of Christ. And then in our last meeting, Mary responds with what has been called the Magnificat, which I think is just a wonderful, you know, if it's a canticle or a poem or a song, it is her prophetic response, her prophetic praise for what God will accomplish through the child in her womb. But now Luke moves back to John. Now we're moving back to the story of the birth of John the Baptist, and we read, and Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. We live 
in an age, a Christian age, if you will, where the Christian faith for many people, many believers, is a sort of private spiritual enterprise. You know, we got our books, we can watch or listen to sermons online, and I'm here to tell you that whatever you hear today, you can go online, you can go on Sermon Audio and find a better sermon than you're going to hear this morning. I mean, you can find the best preachers in all of human history, even the guys who aren't alive, they're going to, they're, you go on Sermon Audio, they'll be reading sermons, right? You can listen to Charles Spurgeon's sermons or Calvin's sermons. And then, after we do that, after we read our book and listen online, then we post our thoughts, wait for responses, and then we content ourselves that our operations are sufficient for the Christian life. But we read here a record of something that we might gloss over. I don't know about you, sometimes I'm reading things in the Bible, introductions, and I just want to gloss over them and get to the meat. Let's get to the meatier portion of the passage. But God, by His Spirit, had determined these words were going to be in His Bible. And, you know, we got a lot of Bibles, we got a lot of paper. Interestingly enough, you know, when this was written with the papyrus, there was a limited amount of papyrus, a limited amount of ink, and if you were going to put something in the Bible, it better be important. And it was. We're not just glossing over things. At the birth of John, both neighbors and relatives rejoiced. We are to be aware and participate in the significant events in the lives of our brothers and sisters. We are to, as we read in Romans, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. So births, weddings, baby showers, funerals, so forth, are significant. You know, I mean, I'll tell you, you know, I mean, if, if somebody in this church dies and nobody goes to their funeral, I'm going to put, put off by that. You know, I'm like, you don't, I mean, these are your brothers and sisters. Somebody's having a baby, you're not, you don't care. Somebody's getting married, you know, I mean, at what level are you to participate? And I realize not everybody can go to everything. But these types of things are not mere mundane activities. When we have, you know, you know we're making cookies or we have a game night and you're like going, well, you know, when you're going to do something spiritual, let me know. You're going to have a game night, eh, you know. I'm way too pious for a game night. But, you know, let me tell you something. You know, our family, you know, has a history of playing games. You sit around the table. You're playing the games. You know what else you do when you're playing games? You talk. You get to know each other. It's a wonderful time. Matter of fact, it's face-to-face time rather than a lesson where it's shoulder-to-shoulder time. So when people organize whatever it is, a baby shower or what have you, We as a church should look to get involved. And again, we can't all go to every last single thing. But what we see here is not only the family, but the the neighbors showed up to rejoice with, with Elizabeth. Now, certainly, that situation with Elizabeth was extraordinary. God had shown her great mercy in her old age. Her friends were aware. Her friends participated. Are you aware of what's going on, at least with some people in your own church? Sometimes, you know, 
Somebody will be, I'm just going to point to you because you're sitting there. Somebody will be sitting right there for 10 years. You haven't been here 10 years. But for 10 years. And somebody will be sitting right there for 10 years. And after church, they'll both walk up to, to ask me a question. And I will jokingly introduce them. Hey, have you met so-and-so? I, you've been sitting 40 feet apart for 10 years. And oftentimes, they'll be like, oh, no, what's your name? Like, I was kidding. <laughs> we need to get to know one another. And, you know, don't, don't sprint out, you know, look around, engage. This is something we're reading of in the Bible, and I think we should imitate it. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, no, he shall be called John. But they said to her, there's no one among your relatives who's called by that name. So they made signs to his father what he would have him called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote saying, his name is John. Well, certainly, you know, there are events, you know, in light of what I just said, there are, li- there are events that carry more weight than others. Or at least they should. I mean, what we have here is a miraculous birth. This is something very extraordinary that took place. But I am, will- I, I am here to tell you, and this is my position on this, that even that miraculous birth, that extraordinary birth, plays second fiddle to the promise of God, which includes that which is eternal. So you're looking at this going, wow, something great happened. But something is about to take place that's even bigger than that. You know, certain events, you know, you you go on trips, you go on vacations, you, you, you do things, right? We all do those types of things. Certain events we enjoy simply because it's a time of relaxing. Right? I mean, to me, when I think of a vacation, I think relax. Other people, when they think of a vacation, they think activities. You know, I mean, you got all sorts of different things taking place. Some events are more fun because there's an objective. You know, you're gonna you're gonna go here because there's a concert. Are you gonna go there because there's a play? Are you gonna go there because there's a sporting event? And it's kind of like, well, that adds a dimension, right, to the event. There's something taking place. But I'll tell you this. And I'm not a traveler. I don't like traveling. I don't like planes especially. But when when I'm on a plane heading for China or Thailand or the times I've gone, you know, to Mexico to do ministerial work, those are the richest times. Those are the times where the event is something significant. Those are the times when the event is eternal. So even though it's not the relaxation of a, sitting by a pool in Palm Springs, you recognize that this event that I'm part of has eternal implications. Everyone is rejoicing with Elizabeth over her miraculous birth. That's the event. But the circumcision brings it to a much more profound level. Something something bigger is happening. Like I said a minute ago, you know, we have, you know, we're going to make cookies. And that, hey, that's great. Let's do that, get to know each other. But if you're going to have a baptism, now there's something. 
I, I enjoy a good party. I generally enjoy sitting and watching a good party. You know, people are enjoying themselves. Like last night, it was just fun to watch everybody interact and have a good time with one another. But you know what's great? A wedding reception. Because, you know why? Because there was a wedding. Right? There was a wedding, and then, uh, you know, the, the wedding party comes in, and they're announced, and the new couple comes in, and then, you know, you, we're not Baptists, so we dance. There's something more festive about the event when something significant happened for thousands of years. For thousands of years, circumcision was a sign of God making a promise that he would keep in Christ. Little doubt this was the highlight of the affair. The generational promise of God that he puts upon the children of God's children that he puts upon the children of his children. Peter preached it this way. <clears throat> this is a, you know, a very popular common verse, but let me just challenge your thinking on this a little bit. Because I know for even people in our church, members in our church, infant baptism is confusing. But here's one passage you've got to wrestle with. Peter's preaching about the new covenant beginning and being fulfilled in Christ. And he says, for the promise, and I would argue that the promise he's talking about is something I referred to earlier, that promise given to Abraham, that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This promise that he had made, really, in kind of seminal form all the way back in Genesis 3. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Well, it may not be obvious, but you have to ask yourself, why does he mention the children? Why doesn't he just say, for the promises to you and to all who are far off, as many as God will call? But he doesn't. He says, to you and your children. It, it seems superfluous if you don't recognize something unique about the child of the believer. It is the sacramental means by which God extends his promise from generation to generation. It's the way it was in the Old Covenant, and there's nothing in the New Covenant that says we no longer do it that way. And not to get down on the Baptists, you know, and I, I love Baptists, I was a Baptist. But it's almost as if Baptists recognize this omission in their theology, so they create a semi-sacrament like infant dedication. It's like infant baptism without the water. We, we know there should be something for the kids, and God seemed to forget to put something in there, so we'll create it ourselves. But no, God has done that. Let's enjoy the words of Matthew Henry when he wrote, the greatest comfort we can take in our children is in giving them up to God and recognizing their covenant relation to him. The baptism of our children should be more our joy than their birth. Well, moving on, everybody's got an opinion on the child's name. You know, I was listening to one sermon on this, and I don't know, the pastor decided we're going to really address meddling families or whatever, and I'm like, yeah, I don't think that's really the point here. At the same time, they're like, hey, let's name him. <laughs> you know, really? And they're like, hey, we're going to name him Zacharias after his father. You know, I mean, it seems like a reasonable option, right? People select names for their children. You know, I'm going to be honest, sometimes I wonder, you know. <laughs> really? That's the name. All right. 
I mean, I think about our own, you know, selecting of names. You know, we picked our first child, Gabriella. You know, it was a name my wife and I both loved, and it went well with the last name, you know. Gabriella. Gabriella Noel Vigiano. Is, now she's Gabriella Hunt. Eh. He, he's a great guy, though. I mean, she did, she did well. She did well with him. And then our second child we named after me, right? It would have been kind of what they all wanted to do. Hey, Zach, let's name him Zach. You know, so he's named after me. Our third child was named after my mother's mother. It was in the Italian version of my mother's mother. My mother's mother's name was Sophie. So, but, you know, Vigiano, we had to Italianize it, so Sophia. And then our fourth child was the Italianized version of my wife's father, Gene, Gino. I mean, all of this was some type of an attempt to respect, you know, the, the, the ancestry. You know, this idea that this is kind of where this is coming from. We're not grabbing these names out of thin air. Sometimes people pick their favorite theologian, right? I know in the OPC, every other kid's got Calvin somewhere in their name. <laughs> or Martin, or Charles... Or maybe you name your child after, after a popular artist, like Dylan is a big one. Sometimes it's Bob Dylan, sometimes it's Dylan Thomas. I'm wondering if in the future there are going to be a bunch of kids named Kanye. <laughs> hey, man, we're going to have to deal with it. Sometimes, sometimes you know, do, names do make a difference. Sometimes, you know, people give their boy a feminine name or their girl a masculine name, and I'm like, Boy, that may be problems down the road. I mean, not to make too, but there's, there's something about the naming of the child. You know, early in the 20th century, there was some literature that came out, popular literature, where there was a valet whose name was Jeeves. And it was very popular. And it got to the point where I grew up knowing that if your name was Jeeves, you were probably a butler. Matter of fact, Jerry Seinfeld did a whole comedy routine where he says, you know what, if you name your kid Jeeves, you've pretty much mapped out their career. <laughs> in the Bible, names do mean things. I mean, we might say, what's in a name? But in the Bible, names do mean things. Zacharias, the father's name, it means Jehovah remembers. Elizabeth means God is an oath. And John means... Jehovah has been gracious. So these names actually mean things. But notice here, there's no equivocating. Elizabeth was firm. He shall be called John. But Zacharias pounds the pylon deeper, right? He doesn't say his name shall be called John. He says his name is John. And this was communicated through a writing tablet. If you recall, Zacharias was stricken, you know, mute because of his unbelief. He was probably mute and deaf because they had to make signs to communicate with him. So he can't talk. He can't even hear. You know, sometimes, you know, ministers lose their ability to speak. And if they can't speak, they've got to rethink their calling. Right? It's one of the things you've got to be able to do. I mean, you've got to be able to speak. But in, let me tell you, you know, and this is a challenge to ministers, because there are guys younger than me who've retired, you know. And so this is my challenge 
challenge to them, unless you've lost your mind. I don't understand retiring, at least in the traditional sense. I understand slowing down. I understand you don't have the energy. But this idea that I'm done, you, even if you can't talk, you can still write. Zacharias was old, and he couldn't talk, but he could still write. Some of our greatest biblical literature was written from prisons. If you've been called to the ministry, I don't understand retirement in that traditional sense. If you can't speak right. You know, my, my dad, and I, I do pray that it, my, my assessment was accurate, that he came to faith later in life. But he was not, generally speaking, a source of theological wisdom for me. He didn't know this Bible but he had other wisdom. I hope we can all learn from the wisdom of other people, even if they're not kind of traditionally wise. He was from Brooklyn. He'd been in the military during World War II. He spent some time in the ring. He spent some time as a barge captain on the Hudson, you know, during the 30s and 40s. And I remember he, you know, and he did some things that he'd probably be, you know, arrested for today in terms of raising kids, you know, he set up fights for me. I was like 10 years old and stuff, you know. But he did bring to me what has become, I think, an anachronistic disposition of determination. I mean, he was just kind of like, you got to be ready to pick Paulie. He used to call me Paulie. Hey, Paulie, sometimes you got to fight. You got to be ready to fight. He actually, this is one of the things I do remember from him. He said, look it, if you can't if you can't run, walk. And if you can't walk, crawl. And if you can't crawl, run. I mean, and he meant it. That was the disposition. Zacharias couldn't talk, but he could write. And he was unequivocating. His name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, praising God. Then fear came on all who dwelt around them, and all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. We had learned earlier, and I mentioned it just a second ago, that Zacharias was the recipient of a chastisement from God because of his unbelief, right? Gabriel said this is going to happen, and his response was a response of unbelief. But that chastisement, even in the very beginning, if we read in verse 20 of chapter 1, would only last until the day that these things take place. It was like, when this happens, the chastisement is coming to an end. And as I said a minute ago, it would appear that the chastisement was that he'd be both mute and deaf, so you got this chastisement. You know, God is striking you mute and deaf. I think it's worth taking a look at the life of Zacharias and Elizabeth that we read in verse 6. That they were, quote, righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord. Right? So we're talking about good people. We're talking about Faithful people, nonetheless. Hebrews 12, 6, for the Lord disciplines who? 
the ones he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives. So here's something I think we need to understand. I don't know, I don't know what's going on in everybody's life. I have a pretty good idea of a lot of your lives, but I, you know, how you're kind of reading it in terms of God's pleasure or displeasure with you. But the chastisement of Zacharias was not an indictment against his entire character. I mean, Luke goes out of his way to say, no, this is a good, faithful, obedient person. It was not a sign of God's overall displeasure. You know, where you're going, you failed in this, therefore what a disappointment you are in your entirety. It is a refining in the same chapter, chapter 12 of Hebrews, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. It's almost like you don't even have to write that, right? We all know that. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. I mean, I, you know, I, mean, I like the word trained because of my sports background. So let me ask you this question. Is God training you? Are you being trained right now? And how are you responding to that training? I'd say it's difficult to guess all of the ups and downs Zacharias might have had in those nine months of training. Nine months, you can't hear, you can't talk. I wonder, I wonder if at the end of his life, if somebody came up to him and said, what was the best nine months of your life? What was the most sanctifying nine months of your life? What... Where is that period where you say that God made you most Christ-like? I'm wondering if those nine months would have been that, those times when I couldn't do this, I couldn't speak, I could, but, you know, I could pray, I could read, you know, I could meditate upon the Word, I could do all of that, and I was just undistracted. I still hear okay, you know, I'm not, I haven't got great hearing, you know, but it, I don't need a hearing aid yet. The idea of a hearing aid, you know, I don't think aesthetically works. But sometimes I think if I lose my hearing and I have a hearing aid, there are times when I could just turn that down. <laughs> so if, if that's you, if I get that hearing aid and you walk in and you start talking, I'm like... Because you're undistracted, right? I mean, that, for him, I'm wondering, and I don't know. I don't know for sure, but the end result, the fruit of that training is seen in the very first thing his loosed tongue does when his speech is returned. What does he say? He spoke praising God. Is that what you're ready to, to do once you're through whatever it is you're going through right now? Are you ready to come out the other end of the tunnel going, praise the Lord? Or are you just becoming more and more bitter as a result of, if God were really God, you know, some soccer player recently you know, got injured, and they're like, see, I got injured, proof that God doesn't exist. I think I got that right. I'm like, okay, I need, I need a bigger argument than, I don't like what happened, therefore God doesn't exist. I hope that as we go through those trials, we recognize that God is disciplining the child that he loves, that he might yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness in all of us. 
I'm confident that it could be said of Zacharias in this instance, for out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth spoke. You ever listen to yourself? Sometimes, um, sometimes I still play sports, and sometimes, like you know, something will happen that I don't like, and I'll I'll generally whisper it because I don't want anybody to hear what I just said. You know, I've learned to kind of at least not, but I'm like, wow, where is that coming from, right? Just, it, you, it might even be, you might not even actually say it. It's just like right there, but it's the, your very first response is something that if you said out loud, we'd all be like, what? Anyways, now the atmosphere of the event seems to change, right? So they're there, there's a party, they're rejoicing, everybody's having a good time, and interestingly enough, the moment he's able to speak after nine months, the party of joy at the prospect of a merciful God and a new baby now transitions into a dwelling of fear. I would have to say, and I think this is true of me, and I think it's true of most Christians I, I know, that a healthy, reverent fear of God has seemed to fall on hard times. I, I just don't, I mean, this idea that, you know, we don't want to present God as austere. You know, R.C. Sproul used to say, you know, we're trying to defang God. We got to take the fangs out, you know, present him in a different, in a different way. You know, in Paul's charge against a universal sinful humanity, that climaxes, when he's going, let me tell you how sinful people are in their nature. It climaxes with these words in Romans 3, 15 through 18, and there's a lot other said before this, but this is where he crescendos. Their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. And this is the very last thing he says. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You know, in his great hymn that I so often will hear mocked, you know, in kind of the popular arena, John Newton wrote, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." I think we live in an age where there is neither fear nor relief from fear. It's very bland. It's very vapid. It's very mundane. There's just... There's just nothing there. It's like the Christian faith is just another self-help program. And, you know, I'll go in there, and if it helps me, great. And if not, I'll go somewhere else. You know, I'll listen to Tony Robbins or something. I'll just do something else to get me where I feel like I need to go. Many of you know our family took a recent trip, and um, I don't take a lot of trains. I'm afraid. I have a fear of flying even though it's super safe. I have no fear of trains, which are kind of dangerous. I understand, like, your chance of dying in a train is, you know, in terms of the mileage. You know. But, you know, that's just the way we are, right? We're afraid of things we shouldn't be afraid of. There, there are things in my life that I should very much be afraid of that I'm not afraid of. And other things, like flying, where I'm like, white knuckle and my wife's stroking me. It's okay, honey. <laughs> like, she really does that, you know? But we were waiting for a, a train, 
And while we were waiting for this train, another train passed by. I don't really spend a lot of time by trains, but this train was very close, and it was very loud, and you could feel the power of not only the wind, but the power of the train. And I'm thinking, why isn't there guardrails here? I mean, this thing just seemed so dangerous. It was so scary, right? This power, the power of this, of this train. Sometimes you feel, and this is another thing I'm not afraid of, but some are, you feel an earthquake, right? You're like, ooh. Yeah, I was just raised in Southern California, so they don't affect me. But some people are like, I'm not moving to Southern California. They have earthquakes. I'm like, no, but they have tornadoes where you live. <laughs> or a powerful storm, right? The wind of a storm or a huge wave. I remember when I was in high school, we went to Newport Beach to a place called The Wedge, this surf spot, body surfing spot. And I remember getting out of the car about a, wee, about a block away from, from the water and just hearing these pounding thuds and asking my buddies, I'm like, what was that? They're like, those are the waves. And I'm like, we're going to go in that way. And it was just unbelievably powerful. And one guy ended up in a neck brace. I mean, it was just the power of it. These things bring fear. I think we all have things that we're afraid of. But so let me just say this to you, my point here. The idea that we can interact with the maker of all these things and carry a casual disposition is folly. You just, you just don't understand, if, if that's the attitude, you don't understand God. If you think you could just stroll on in, you know, I mean, I've said this, and I, you know, I, I the risk of repeating myself, and I've been told I repeat myself, but I've been told I repeat myself. <laughs> but I, you know, I think one of my favorite writers in Scripture is John. You know, John, who initially, you know, the sons of thunder, the mom is like, hey, can he be number one? Can my sons be in charge? You know, and. And then he gets all intimate with Jesus, right? When he's writing John, the gospel, he's like, he's the apostle who Jesus loved. Jesus loves me. And I don't think he's kind of going, he loves me more than other people, but I do think he's kind of going, look at, this is the attribute of my Savior that I find most comforting and at peace with, that I am somebody he loves. And, he, and at the Last Supper, remember, he leans upon the bosom of Jesus. And so there's something very intimate. But then John also wrote the Revelation. And remember in the first chapter of Revelation, when John in his vision sees the glorified Christ, remember what happens? He doesn't stroll into the room, does he? He falls down as dead. And Jesus has to grab him by his right hand and lift him up and say, don't be afraid. I think, I think we need to recognize that that fear of God is a healthy thing because God will sometimes bring us to places in our lives of fear that we might go to him to have those fears relieved. And one of my most you know, tender moments with my children when they were little is when they were afraid. If they were afraid of something, you know what they would do? They would run to me. And I would hold them. I'd pick them up. You know, it's kind of like, that is, that is beautiful. I think it is a wonderful picture, and it's very, very intimate. Well, those in attendance at this, I'll call it a baby shower, would come to realize that this was no ordinary baby. 
What happened there would now be discussed, we're told, throughout all the hill country of Judea. Judea. All right, something happened here. Something huge was about to happen. God was about to inject humanity. God was about to inject humanity with the panacea. You know what a panacea is, right? It's something that pan means all. It's the idea that it's going to cure everything. God is about to inject humanity with the cure. And John the Baptist is like that swab, right? You know, the little swab, just getting the arm ready for the shot. That's what John the Baptist is. In the same way that the fame of Jesus spread throughout all of Syria, we read in Matthew chapter 4, those events surrounding the birth of John were discussed and pondered. What kind of child will this be? What is going on here? From the womb, John was unique. What we see here is God is he's, he's breeding an anticipation. right? He's getting people kind of, you know, it all starts there. And everybody starts looking. Right? They're like, whoa, what is going on here? Sometimes we see two talented adults get married and have children. And the community, I've done this, the community, whether it's sports or arts or academics, will have an eye on that child. I mean, what's... Remember when I... Years ago, I knew this couple, and they were both brainiacs, you know? And they got married. And then they had children. And I'm, I remember all of us looking at the kids going, you know, they're starting to say stuff at two that I still haven't figured out how to say. You know, you're like going, what is... You know, what? You see this child... Where are they going to grow up to be? And that's what God was doing with John the Baptist. He, it was kind of like, okay, there's, you got this unique event surrounding the birth. Where is this going to go in terms of this child? All Judea had an eye on John. And I don't doubt, because it was probably roughly you know, 30 years before he began his preaching ministry, that there were still people there who remembered all of a sudden, you know, because, you know, if you were, if you were 30, when, John, when this happened, you were 60. If you were 20, you were 50, right? And all of a sudden, John's preaching. And you're like going, oh, okay, here it comes. There were some probably not surprised because the hand of the Lord, we read, was with them. Now, in our next meeting, we're going to put our hearts toward Zacharias's prophetic response. Mary had a prophetic response. Now, in our next meeting, Zacharias will have a prophetic response. And I don't doubt he's, he's a man, he's a person, human, that he rejoiced in being a parent. He rejoiced in the new addition to the household. You know, I mean, how happy, that, how wonderful that must have been to have that little baby running around. But for Zacharias, as with John, his son, the spotlight, even in what Zacharias is about to do in our next meeting, is going to move away from his son. And it's going to move to, quote, the day spring. It's going to, it's going to move toward the actual sunrise. Oh, yeah, this day spring means kind of like a sunrise. I mean, it's almost like, it's almost like Don, John the Baptist is the rooster crowing before the sun comes up. Right? The sun is about to come up, the day spring from on high, to give light. This is where Zacharias is going to go. 
He's going to go to Christ, just like his son will, to give light to those who are in the darkness. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you have created events that seem to have started so small, what looks to us like a baby shower and a, and a circumcision, the, the sacramental inclusion of your children. And yet here we are 2,000 years later, and it is the object of our hearts. The word of God has recorded it, and we are pondering it, and by your spirit believing it. And we do pray, Father, that we would ever be conformed into your image, the image of your Son, through it. And we pray in his name. Amen.